Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I'm excited because today we are speaking with another excellent teacher about her teaching journey to the science of reading and structured literacy. I am sorry if my voice comes and goes today. I have just tested positive for COVID, um, but we're going to push through anyways. So a big welcome to Catherine Hayes Weld Hoover. And I look forward to learning about your journey. Good day, Catherine. How are you? I'm great. And I'm so happy to be here. And thanks for persevering um, and, and continuing on to uh, make this platform available to everyone, even when you are so, so unwell. <laughs> So thank you. Thank you for doing that. No problem. Well, let's start at the start at the beginning of your teacher journey. What made you want to be a teacher? So um, I'm a, a mom, I'm a mother of three girls and uh, previous to getting to experience motherhood, um, I also came from a family of three girls and um, in education, learning didn't always come easy to me. Um, I, there were many times when I was faced with a lot of difficulties and didn't really understand why it was so challenging for me um, to learn and kind of persevere through um, an education system that didn't always meet my needs. So ultimately that drove me to become an educator, not knowing why it was so difficult um, and why I struggled so much through, through traditional learning um, classroom environments. And um, when I reached grade nine, I was um, put forward to have a psych evaluation done. Um, however, it was recommended that uh, IPRC take place, but that was not pursued on my behalf, which is okay, because it's all part of this learning journey and it's part of my story. And um, was at least identified that I did have some tendencies for dyslexia and, um, but without the formal identification, accommodations and modifications were not always put in place. So moving forward and uh, pursuing my college certification and my and going through university it um it made it a little bit more challenging because I didn't have the accommodations and modifications to advocate for myself um, but that's okay because it it gave me a new lens of how to support students through a UD um, universal design approach right because I was so embedded in that um state of challenge um, because it didn't come at ease to me. So kind of reflecting on all of that. And then about four years ago, I was provided the paperwork of my psych evaluation. And then all that kind of came to light. And I was like, wow, this is incredibly insightful now that I have all of this knowledge. Um, and so that's one component to why I've become an advocate for structured literacy because I see 
how it can help the kids turn their lights on. Um, and a second component would be that my daughter was formally diagnosed um, as having dyslexia. Um, we pursued in her grade two year private assessments to be completed for a formal diagnosis, uh, which has been a, a, also another great learning journey because we've established those um, accommodations and modifications that she needs in order to be successful so early in her school career. So she, her learning journey kind of looked like kindergarten, really struggling. Uh, and we noticed that she wasn't consolidating those letter sounds and she advocating for a structured literacy approach um, for her. And then when COVID happened, and the lockdowns occurred, we um, ultimately pulled her from public education. And for the, her full grade three year, she did a hybrid model of learning. So two days at private school, um, I program planned for her the other two days. And we were so fortunate to have a family member implement all of that. And then once a week, um, getting Orton-Gillingham structured lessons through a speech pathologist and to celebrate her successes because she she's reading at grade level now and she's Amazing. has come so far because of everything that's been put in place and and as she returned to public education um because i wholeheartedly believe that um public education can serve our children so um putting her back into her school community. She um, has thrived in the schools, really been great at putting her in, into the right programs and advocating for her as well. Um, she has been put in Empower as well to kind of continue to make those gains because we know um, that core instruction is really critical to maintain those gains because once we stop teaching that those concepts, they they start to lose them if they haven't been conceptualized or um, are not as concrete as we like. So she's on a great um, trajectory for learning. So we still just are gonna continue to advocate for um, those next steps in as she moves along her elementary career um, for morphology and all of those next pieces that um, we know are beneficial and are research-based so that she can have those successes. Of course. And uh, every child deserves the right to read, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and ideally not having to go through what you or I went through mm -hmm. as students with learning disabilities. And you and I both have children uh, with dyslexia, uh, with that genetic nature. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's hard to see them struggle relating that to our own struggle. Mm -hmm. So we understand the why, but so once you finished high school, what did you do? Um, struggled, <laughs> moving through, <laughs> struggled. Um, but I had an amazing support system because my family knew that I needed that support. So they seeked a tutor. And even though I wasn't formally identified through the, the board, um, they were putting those pieces in place for me to 
to be as successful as possible. So I did have a tutor going through the rest of high school. Um, and then I moved into a college program um, and focused on uh, a Bachelor of Recreation and Leisure and then shifted into um, Teachers College at Madai University and in Buffalo. So when I went to Madai, it was a great learning experience. I was introduced, I wouldn't say that I was provided with all the tools to be a successful reading instructor because a reading teacher, because it is so complex and you can't learn that, that depth of knowledge, especially when you already don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I didn't learn it to the extent that I needed, but I was given a good foundation, mm -hmm. a, a platform for me to build off of. And what I mean by that is I was introduced to the Florida Center for Reading Research through Teachers College. And when I was hired um, at the board to do a great, my first teaching um, position was a grade one LTO in the inner city. I based my entire program around the Florida Center for Reading Research to complement the curriculum because that's how I understood reading should be approached. So, and it was the big five, so the pillars. So um, each of my literacy centers within that grade one program focused on one of those big five pillars. Mm -hmm. So the kids had those foundational pieces um, and that, and that was just kind of a breaking point of my learning, almost like that iceberg. And once you get to that little bit of knowledge, there's just the depth of knowledge that you need in order to support the reading development along such a large continuum is, is a vast amount of knowledge that you need. Um, so from there, I completed my... Um, AQ courses in Ontario to get my reading specialist. And I was very fortunate enough. I took mine through Quaco, my first, my part one. The instructor did focus a lot on the process of reading and phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. So I felt like I had a little bit more mm -hmm. to build upon. Um, and then the subsequent um, reading AQs focused more on comprehension and balanced literacy. So losing some of those pieces and really trying to find how it all weaves together. So I moved from teaching grade one into kindergarten mm -hmm. um, for a few years. And then section 23, um, which is some, some classrooms within Ontario who um, the students I had were in foster care. So it was a smaller group of students um, with a focus on mandated to only teach literacy and mathematics. Um, so I was able to narrow down more, but through K to five. So mm -hmm. my students in that class were from K to five and it, and it was an amazing experience, one of the most rewarding um, because relationships were so fundamental. Um, but a lot of them needed that reading support because they missed all those basic early literacy skills because of the self-regulation and all of those other components. And, their well-being wasn't being met. So kind of going back and kind of um, catching them up on some of those early literacy components was really important in that class. And um, then I moved into an instructional coach position. Okay, let me just 
pause there for a minute because there are a couple questions I do have. About, Absolutely. Uh, so you did a bachelor's in leisure and recreation, right? Recreation and leisure. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so in that program, did you have anything on linguistics or reading development? No. No. Okay. But you said in your teacher education program, you were introduced to the Florida Center for Reading Research, which I think is amazing. I think you're the first teacher that I've spoken to on this podcast and webinar or webcast that had had this introduced to them in their pre-service training, which is an amazing step because the vast majority of teachers don't. So you really were able to hit the ground running, knowing this and about the big five from the beginning. So even though when you did your AQ courses for reading special, a reading specialist, and only one of them focused on those, those big five components, mm-hmm. other than reading comprehension, you still had that foundational knowledge allowing you to make sure that the instruction had those components, which is amazing. And absolutely, but I think I did have some great foundational pieces, but I was reteaching myself because we've learned stuff, all of those components to an unconscious level. And as being dyslexic and not knowing I was dyslexic and, and trying to unpack all of these things by myself without the right supports, wasn't as successful as maybe somebody else who didn't have a learning disability and of course really comprehend um all of the components and but it did I do feel like I had a great foundation to start with yeah Um, and it and it gave me that um motivation to seek more yeah I, I think the key thing that's really important and especially for dyslexis is learning about the phonological awareness and the phonemic awareness piece. Cause I know, um, like I, I was fortunate enough to have the support through my education, um, with Orton Gillingham tutoring and that sort of thing. But at that point, the focus wasn't necessarily as specific on the phonological awareness. And, and then I ended up taking some linguistic courses and I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that in the first place, right? Yeah. yeah. That um, explicit, explicit instruction that we need, yeah. right? So. Exactly. And understanding things at the phoneme level, especially for the students that are struggling, mm-hmm. right? And we know uh, from research that readers who are at risk for reading failure typically have phonological processing deficits, yeah. right? Um, and like hearing about the, the at-risk uh, student category that you had those time, that time teaching with, um, that component probably made the difference for those students. And, and that's my hope, right? Is that um, even when I didn't know as much as I knew now, and yeah. even though I have so much more learning to do, that we still set those kids up for success and gave them the foundation because I don't want kids to struggle the way I struggled or struggle the way my daughter struggled. And I just want everyone to be set up for success. 
And that's what is a common theme among dyslexics in education uh, is that that drive and that determination to make it better for those uh, going forward than the experiences that they had because you know they're, they're traumatizing uh, and difficult and they never go away. Um, and it's something that you think you're over and then it comes back and you're like, well, maybe I'm not. Um, but instead of being bitter uh, and you know, resentful about it in the sense that you're not going to do anything to change it. You've taken that important step and saying, no, this isn't okay. We need to do better. And I'm going to be the change that I want to see. Yeah. And, and it just, it resonates so, so much because with all the research that's coming out and with the movement for the science of reading and the right to read report and those recommendations, and it just, those numbers from the, um, I'm drawing a blank. The Ontario Human Rights Commission, right to read. Um, also, the one of the ladders where. Um, oh, the ladder of reading. Yes, the ladder of reading, and sixty-five percent of students require explicit systematic instruction, and so pairing that with our our concept and our understanding and the theories behind universal design, those marry so well together. Yeah. It, it really does. So if we know better, we can do better. And I think that's important to note is that even though we're talking about best practices for students that are at risk for reading failure, they benefit everyone. Yeah. Right? They're not going to hurt anyone. It's right. not going to harm other students' reading development. And it gives the possibility of 95% of students reaching proficiency uh, by the end of grade one. And then that's still saying by the end of grade three, which is amazing. And I think it should be the goal for every school. Yeah. And um, it's doable if we have the knowledge, the content knowledge and the resources um, to be able to execute that. Yeah, of course. So can you go on from your journey? Um, Absolutely. You were just um, talking about moving from that high-risk classroom. And so when I moved from Section 23, I was actually heading off of a maternity leave and moving into an instructional coach position, which was a new role. And um, I applied just, just to apply because <laughs> I love to put things out in the universe. Mm -hmm. And um, I was provided the opportunity to be, become an instructional coach. And I was put in three schools, um, two very high needs, all high needs. Um, and what came to light there was um, at that school, they started to implement um, a response to intervention because they had an inverted triangle. Yeah. And I didn't have any knowledge whatsoever other than my foundational I was like oh perfect I can start to implement some of these components from the Florida Center of Reading Research and this will be great learning um, the administration team there was phenomenal because they were very proactive providing um, the release time and the support so when I say that 
they took a um, response to intervention approach, they started to, the speech pathologist at the school was like, we should look into using Dibbles. And I said, okay, great. So I, one of the big components to um, the depth of learning that happened there with educators and the administration staff and, my, and myself was um, the co-learning environment. So the fact that we had a speech pathologist at the table um, with that in-depth knowledge around phonemes and would also take a co-teach and co-learning approach. And um, then we had the release time as well. So no one at the school knew other than the speech path um, knew how to utilize Dibbles. So we were all learning it together. And so my lens being, if these teachers are who I need to support, then I need to really learn about how to support them with this tool using Dibbles. So um, one of the, the big pieces was, as I mentioned, that co-learning and then the release time. So learning how to analyze the data, learning how to plan. And we had cyclical cycles um, where we focused on the targeted instruction and really identified what the student need was. And then from there, what targeted instruction, reading instruction could we implement in order to help them make gains? And we also really unpacked what it means to um, do a double dip. So a tiered invention, intervention being that we are not removing them from core instruction, that it's gonna be in addition to. And because student absenteeism was also a big factor, um, kind of monitoring that too, to see when was the best time to implement our reading instruction. It might not be right at the bell because you have a lot of friends who are not at their best first thing in the morning or coming in late. So really being as responsive as possible to the student need and the socioeconomics in the, in the school as well um, and the dynamics, but also giving the teachers the support, um, the personnel support, but the resources as well and pairing that together to really set them up for success and the release time. Mm -hmm. The release time in school where they can really unpack the learning and feel like it's not a, an onus on their own time to dive into that. Of course. Yeah, because there's a lot of learning that needs to happen if you're new to this information. And it can be intimidating. Uh, and again, it's that emotional roller coaster. And, you know, so many people have come up with the stages of grief going through a balanced literacy pre-service training and coming through to learning about structured literacy and the science of reading. And, you know, it's, it's a lot to learn. I've been on this journey for years uh, and I'm still learning things on, on a regular basis. And there's so many amazing books and resources and webinars out there that can just help you take that deeper dive and taking you to that next step. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, you're not alone in this journey. Uh, and there is a community out there to support you. There is the Right to Read Initiative Facebook group, among many others. Yeah. And um, 
knowing that there are people who are going through this and happy to go through it with you, mm-hmm. I think makes all the difference. Absolutely. There, there are so, it is so much more vocal now and the awareness is really starting to spread. So um, that everyone can tap into the, the ability to build their own knowledge, um, oh. but also that it shouldn't, it should be built in tandem that we're supported um, at the school level and that you can take that professional knowledge because we are um, held to our professional standards and that you want to continue to develop your expertise so that you can continue to use best research to inform your best practice. Of course, of course. Now, what are some of those pieces or resources that you think have really made a difference for you on this journey? Um, so for me, I have, um, access to a plethora of readings, um, but Dibbles was foundational for me prior to, um, moving into a consultant position. So I, um, we really unpacked Dibbles and then I also, we used, um, sorry, one thing was, were you aware of Dibbles from your pre-service training and and the importance of screening or was that? part of it. No. Okay. So that was all new to me. And another piece that was very foundational for supporting my learning was having that network. So having the speech pathologists to check in and to be able to have those conversations, but also there was um, a teacher who I worked alongside with as an instructional coach who was previously a reading specialist in the States and had in-depth knowledge around dibbles. So Mm -hmm. she supported my learning so much and I'm so thankful that um, I had that opportunity to end that support network to be able to, to dive into that um, and our speech and language pathologist our communication services department was foundational in helping me build my knowledge so this was a great book it's I've dibbled now what um, <laughs> uh, it, it provides a lot of there's, you know, it's been well-loved um, just about administration. And then the, really that next step, because our screening is only as effective as the targeted instruction. Mm-hmm. So um, for, for Dibbles, we really wanted to know where we were going and that progress monitoring piece is really critical as well to check in and see if you need to, to change the trajectory if those students are not um, going to be meeting benchmark then with that universal screener, we need to change either the duration, the, the time of day when you're doing it. So all of, kind of considering all of those factors if they're not making the gains to where we want them to. So um, I've dibbled now what was a great resource. And then also um, next steps in literacy instruction was also um, connecting assessments to effective interventions. That was a really good one. So it, because we didn't have we had um, Texas primary reading inventory kits made up, our speech and language department did. So we had some of those resources at our fingertips for classrooms to use. This was another great one because it had a lot of phonological awareness um, and phoneme awareness components and just ease of implementation, just a lot of activities. But it also um, went through kind of that syllable awareness and all of the components within that phoneme, 
phonemic awareness continuum. So those were two really foundational resources for me. Um, and just to let listeners know, we will have links into the show notes about these resources. So don't worry if you haven't been able to write them down. Um, so those were two great ones to start with. Um, and then from there, our communication services did put out um, what's called sound bites, and which is a collection of the, a board curated tool um, for targeting phonological awareness skills. And it's really because we have the play-based program in kindergarten, it's to infuse um, those aspects kind of during transitions to maximize um, the learning and again, give the teachers the tools and resources to be successful. I think it's important to know that it's very easy to include these in that play-based environment when we're talking about the phonological and the phonemic awareness. And it doesn't mean that we need to have students sitting at desks in rows doing activities. They are very engaging, playful, and the kids love them for the most part. They do. And you can, I, my program that I ran for the past three years was, we love to incorporate outdoor learning as well. So it, you can, it can go with you because there's not a lot of resources that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just is a quick and easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. Of course. So prior to becoming um, a consultant, I was an instructional coach and then I moved into a consultant role where I was afforded the opportunity to delve deeper into reading research. Um, and one of my portfolios that I supported was um, all students reading by the end of grade one across the board. So um, that gave me the opportunity to then, um, I had a principal at the time who saw all the learning that I had immersed myself in and sent me to be formally trained in Dibbles. So that was a really great learning opportunity um, and the learning continued from there. So um, being able to then train board staff in Dibbles as well, um, and then helping curate a lot of board resources. So um, we have the tiered approach to literacy instruction, um, which was put out a few years ago now, and then um, supporting the alphabetical principal um, resources and some screeners in collaboration with um, the speech and language, um, a communication, the communication, um, program department. And then um, finally with the prior to moving in back into the classroom for the past three years, facilitating the early reading strategy um, document that's currently a board document that um, is based on the five pillars. Wonderful. Yeah. That, that's huge. And I just want to clarify, you, you're using Dibbles, not Acadians, right? Because there is a difference. They both stem from the same research, but at some point there was, there was a split and there, you can still access Dibbles and you can access Acadians, which is based on the same principles. Yes. So I um, was using Dibbles okay. and utilizing a lot of board 
resources as well and taking that knowledge from um, the Dibbles measurements to kind of help inform my assessment practices. But in January, I recertified with Acadience to become a mentor with Acadience. So now I'm going to be using that as, um, as assessment tools for universal screeners. So um, yes, I kind of shifted along because I wanted to continue my learning. So I did that outside of the board um, because that Dibbles was no longer pursued at the board level when they shifted to reading specialists. Um, so as I moved into the classroom, um, there was two maternity leaves in there so that I have a collection of three little um, friends at home and um, moving into kindergarten, I felt like I had this spark now for really revamping my entire program. And um, one of the, the pieces there was that I was going to be implementing structured literacy um, and not knowing at the time that it was the science of reading and that it was um, structured literacy. So um, moving into all of those pieces and some other really foundational planning pieces that were amazing um, was our, our speech and language department prior to me moving back into the classroom started to do a little bit of PD on speech to print mm -hmm. by Louisa Motes. Um, and then this is a free resource, which I think is amazing. I based a lot of my learning around it. Um, Foundations for Literacy, which is actually on the IDA's website. It is a Canadian Language and Literacy Research Network. And what I loved about this was it had a milestone document um, in it for per grade. So for kindergarten, what um, you can see here, um, sticky notes, um, all of the components of those early literacy skills, so phonological awareness, alphabetic principle and phonics, vocabulary, decoding, listening comprehension, pencil grip and writing. So it has those look fors where we want them to be right? Just to have that developmental lens of what we should be acquiring by when so that we can make sure that we're intervening to get them to where they need to be if it's, if they're ready, if the subsequent learning has been established. Yeah. Well, and then it highlights where we need to focus the intervention and working on the students' skills. Uh, absolutely. So that, that is also a really useful tool because it builds so, it has so much evidence, um, research-based evidence, reading strategies and instructional strategies weave throughout it and it's very user-friendly and it's free. Free is always good. It's uh, amazing how expensive your uh, Amazon cart can get after uh, going to a, a webinar or conference. And, oh, I need to get that book. <gasps> I haven't heard of that one before. Uh, and they have all have great information and their unique twist. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we're getting to the point where some of this stuff, especially on, you know, phonological awareness and phonics, it is, you're hearing the same stuff over again. And there has been a lot of conversations about best practices for phonological and phonemic awareness in the classroom. And it's important to stay up to date. Right. 
on the intensity and duration of the intervention uh, or classroom instruction, but that doesn't mean that the activities change. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the pieces I've been trying to be cognizant about in regards to that new research is just for a dyslexic students specifically, but we need to be pairing it with those, with those graphemes and showing them the letters, that concrete component so that they can, seeing is believing, so that they can see where they're applying it, right? So that's something that I've been cognizant of trying to weave in whenever, um, whenever I'm doing planning or, or lessons in my classroom is that moving that really abstract thinking to concrete. And so another great resource prior to going back into the classroom, when you're on mat leave, <laughs> your brain just keeps ticking. And um, so I- In the sleep deprived <laughs> mommy moments, you're like, oh, I can do this. Yes. I remember all the things I created on my various uh, mat leaves. <laughs> Um, so I did start to write, um, the prompting framework Mm -hmm. for myself to utilize in my classroom. Um, and I utilize the teaching synthetic phonics, which is in primary schools, um, which is more of a a UK based, um, resource. And they, they used a lot of the, the research from, from the UK because, um, phonics instruction was so so prevalent there. Um, so that was a great resource. It's really also really well loved. Um, I really like that one because it really gives you a lot of information around what it should look like. It's very practical. And then also lessons in teaching um, in primary phonics in primary schools. So that was another amazing resource um, that really helped me begin planning my program before entering back into the classroom because I, I knew that I needed to revamp it based on all the learning that I had experienced of course this level through yeah and then for all those that you are just listening to this as a podcast as she holds up these books and is showing them to us we can see that they're well loved and have a lot of tags so it's not just something that she's saying oh yeah I bought this I read like a page or two and yeah it was good these are books that you have gone through page by page probably several times and make reference to and pull things out of yeah so it's it's not like these are just ones that are on the shelf yeah 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 um one of one of the great additional pieces that I um, learned and took away from my instructional coach days and even as a consultant was just shifting, broadening our idea of assessment, right? So um, moving away, being able to measure the smallest growth growth of of learning. And when we think about um, DRA or developmental reading assessment or PM benchmarks or any of that, Oftentimes our kids are showing growth, but it's not being measured in the way that we need it to be measured in order to track that progress, to track that growth in order to measure their progress as well. So what I mean by that is that the students could be um, really consolidating a lot of letter sounds, but it's not going to be measured in a DRA because 
that's not what it's measuring. So we really need to know um, what it is that our assessments are looking for in order to help us program plan and meet student need. Well, and I, I think that's a very important point that you just brought up because a, a lot of people will try and do some progress monitoring measures and not really be cognizant of what they're actually measuring in that assessment. So if you're doing something like an intensive phonics intervention with a student and you're not seeing much progress, you need to then look at the assessment to see what they're actually looking at. Because if they are testing on words that the student hasn't learned the letter sound correspondence, is their, their score is not gonna go up because they still haven't learned that code. So it's important to figure out what you're doing, whether you're doing assessment of learning or assessment for learning. So when you're doing assessment of learning, you wanna make sure that you're focusing on the concepts that you've covered. And it may have to be one that you create yourself because you know exactly what you wanna see and what you wanna to measure to see if the student is making the progress. When you're doing assessment of learning, you wanna say, okay, well, given what we've taught you, How's it going based on, you know, what we would expect and realizing that they may not see the same progress because what the assessment, if it's a standardized one or whatever, doesn't have the material that you've been working on and you're not teaching for the test, you're teaching for the skills that the student needs to develop so they can be successful in the long run. Absolutely. And, th and a lot of those pieces um, those early literacy pieces, are, we can change that, right? So we're, we're giving ourselves that, that benchmark or the cut point for risk, and then we are intervening to get them to where they need to be. But oftentimes um, what we saw kind of emerge was that yes, in isolation, they can, they, they can tackle that skill, but now we really wanna be intentional around how we've modeled and shown students how to transfer that because we want that authentic application as well because and, and pair that with our triangulation of data so that um, you're seeing the transfer of the skill within a text too right because yes in isolation in a one-on-one -on -one, um, skill development or if you're teaching that student to identify the first sounds or go through and identify and segment the phonemes, then we want to start embedding that into text. Oftentimes I've seen that we hesitate to transfer that, but I'll have those texts right there ready so that the students see where we're applying it into the text because sometimes they don't make that connection. And that's where having decodable texts based on your scope and sequence mm -hmm. and materials can be very useful especially if you want to do something like look at oral reading fluency and you have a decodable text based on the code knowledge that you've been teaching to the student, that's more accurate mm -hmm. than a, a list of words that you may find in a standardized test yeah. because they're not considering the scope and sequence of those standardized tests, but you can complete a simple oral reading fluency task mm -hmm. with any text. Yeah. Right. And if you're looking to pair it with the instruction, grab that decodable text you've been working on in the sequence there, especially if you're using a sequence that has a lot of resources available with it. Yeah. There are numerous ones. So you can very easily 
grab a different one that your student hasn't worked on. So it'll be a novel read of the book, but it's using the code knowledge they've been taught. Absolutely. So I, I know that we've been seeing a lot of decodable text uh, being introduced and it does that align to your scope and sequence, right? So how does it complement the resources that you're putting out for students to access, um, especially in a kindergarten program as well, like the classroom as a third teacher, the provocations that we're putting out as well. And so how, how are they working in tandem? Because you want those to align to your scope and sequence. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. And then asking the students to spell words that fit in that scope and sequence to see if they're translating what they've learned about phonics into print. That being said, what do you think are the most influential steps on this journey that you've taken? And what would you, your advice be to a teacher that's just starting on this journey? I'd say an open door policy. So being um, collaborative with staff and, and educators who really have that like-minded in-depth um, knowledge to help support each other. And um, that has been very foundational for me was being able to tap into those resources, those, those people resources, um, and then having that um, permission to for yourself to know that you you need to grow, right? So, um, and that we're reflective in our practice so that it's constantly evolving. Um, collaboration helps us really, it provides us for a means to be reflective because the learning is only as useful as how we can be reflective as practitioners. Um, so that we know the next steps for students and we know the next steps for ourselves. And um, the Facebook groups are great. The, all of those, the PD also beyond your board. So connecting with um, your International Dyslexic Association, connecting with um, speech, and, speech and language pathologists and, and just taking your learning into your hands, taking your, your learning um, journey into your own hands so that you can help guide where your, where your next learning needs to be because we are all at different continuums of learning on this journey. So only you would really know where you need to go. Yeah, and holding yourself to that professional accountability. Absolutely. Realizing that if your, your district or your school isn't providing you with the opportunities that you need, uh, being able to look elsewhere. Yeah, and, and that is going to help kids and set those kids, your students up for success when we are accountable for where our learning needs to go. And just like a physician, I would want my physician to have the best research available to be utilizing that newest research. And I would expect the same as, and I hold myself to that same standard as being able to um, stay on top of all of that new learning because we are shaping the future minds <laughs> and we wanna set them up for success. Yes, of course. 
And, you know, if you're, you're not sure where to start out and you're using screening in your classroom, look to where you have those clusters of low scores and start there. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if you, um, if the percentage of students, if you have that inverted triangle, um, then a lot of your core instruction can shift, right? Because if a majority of your students are needing that, then you can start implementing that in whole group because we want, it is challenging to be in the classroom at times and be able to meet all of your students' needs um, at the same time, especially if they're at different phases um, within that reading development. So continuum, so really, making use and knowing when to implement whole group and knowing when to implement small group to, to maximize instructional time. Definitely. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I look forward to our next conversation about, you know, in your classroom and those, those tools that you use. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Catherine.